No sooner do voters shoot down the terrible issue one that would have stopped us from changing the Constitution. Now we have an effort to change the Constitution to further restrict the gerrymandered power of an out-of-control legislature. It's another good day on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And that's our first story we're going to talk about. Although I don't understand why the people behind this were trying to keep it so secret. We were trying to report it. No one would talk about it. So we published a story saying these guys are being secretive. And then they came forward with the information. Layla, what do we know about this movement to end gerrymandering by getting the elected officials who disobeyed the Constitution out of the whole process? Yes, and indeed, I, I got a text message from an activist over the weekend alerting her progressive friends to this petition signing event at a local library. And in her note, she said that they weren't advertising the effort to give the opposition less time to react, which I thought was a fascinating strategy. But their proposed amendment, which they now have submitted to Attorney General Dave Yost's office, calls for the creation of a 15-member Ohio Citizens Redistricting Commission be made up of Republicans, Democrats, and independents from all across the state. The plan was put forward Monday by Citizens Not Politicians. That's a newly launched coalition that includes retired former Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, who we know did her part to stand in the way of the gerrymandered maps that were put forth during her time on the bench. Under this proposed constitutional amendment, the 15-member redistricting commission would be in charge of drawing new congressional and legislative district lines in Ohio, first by September 2025, then again after a new census, which is scheduled for 2030. If the commission doesn't pass a map by the deadline, its members would pick a plan using ranked choice voting. Very cool. The amendment would require the Ohio legislature to appropriate $7 million to the commission in 2025. And that amount would increase during subsequent redistricting cycles based on inflation. And the commission members could not be current or former politicians. They can't be party officials or lobbyists or large political donors. And while the Constitution currently states officials shall attempt to draw lines that don't favor or disfavor a given political party, these new rules would require that, finally. <laughs> So it's it's a there are more details in the story about how this would work, but uh, great to see that this is up and running. Well, you said Maureen O'Connor did her best to stand in the way of of before. What what I think Maureen O'Connor did last time was try to uphold the Constitution as approved by the voters. And Mike DeWine and Frank LaRose and Matt Huffman and all the rest of them refused to obey the Constitution. It was a staggering constitutional crisis in Ohio that kept us gerrymandered. And then Matt Huffman's plan was to maintain that with issue one. Issue one, everybody talked about abortion. But a large part of what was in their minds was let's stop people from ending gerrymandering because we have all this false power where we can do anything we want. His words in an interview earlier this year, by shooting down issue one, we make it possible that we can strip these guys of their false power and bring sanity back to the legislature. This is a great effort. And I bet it passes big. The reform back, whatever it was in 2018, passed big. It was more than 70%. They just wouldn't do it. So now 
they won't get to choose. They'll be out of it. And this really would bring an end to the reign of people like Matt Huffman and Frank LaRose and these folks that don't represent Ohio. It's a major step forward. Again, though, I don't get why they were secret about it. They sh- as soon as we called and said, hey, we're doing a story about this. You've been collecting signatures. Somebody should have said something and they just refused. I wonder if it had to do with none of the groups involved wanted to look like they were the ones taking credit. I sometimes get the sense that that's the the case. They don't want to be, um, you know, the one out in front making you know public comments about it until they're ready to file. Okay, then say, hey, look, yes, we have something in the works. We're trying to get a statement ready. We'll have it in a day or so. Uh, We have a lot of people involved. We want to make sure they're all heard from. Then we could at least say, this is what we know so far. This is when they say it's coming. They just ghosted us. They refused to talk about it. And we had this concrete evidence that they were doing it. It's dumb. It's just dumb, 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 (laughs) dumb way to start. Hopefully they'll be smarter going forward. But that's a big, big move for the future of Ohio democracy. It really, this would end the Jerry Serino, Matt Huffman nonsense. We're trying to ram stuff through that doesn't represent us. They wanted 40% of Ohioans to determine the abortion policy for the whole state. And Ohio said, no, it's a majority rule. Now we're going to get rid of these guys that wanted to kill democracy and bring some centrists into the process. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Child care experts get it. The Ohio Chamber of Commerce gets it. And now a poll of Ohioans shows that they get it, too. What would be the easiest path, Laura, to getting a whole lot more Ohioans into the workforce and fill many of the state's long vacant jobs? Providing affordable, quality childcare. I would also add that this would better prepare kids for life so fewer of them end up needing some sort of public support in the future or find themselves in jail. So it would cost us a whole lot less money as a society. But from this poll, it feels like everybody agrees this is a no-brainer. Ohioans want more government help with childcare. The First Five Years Fund, which is a bipartisan advocacy group for childcare, they did the poll with 600 online interviews in Ohio voters. Margin of error was plus or minus 4.6%. And more than 90% of people surveyed said they believe it's important for working parents of young children to have quality child care programs. Every 85% of every political party agreed with that. Three out of four people surveyed agreed that increasing funding for child care and early childhood education is an important priority. That had 73% of independents, 86% of Democrats, and 66 support from Republicans. And 58% said resources that are directed to child care and early learning benefit the individual family and the entire community. So, I mean, this is majority of Ohioans feeling this way. It feels like now it's the no-brainer of no-brainers, that this is just an absolute smart move that <laughs> Matt Huffman stands in the way of because he doesn't believe in child care, wants to keep women home and pregnant. But this is a big deal. I mean, you really do see kind of momentum building. And I I do think that the project you've been coordinating this year has something to do with it. We've provided so much information that shows just how common sense this is. I mean, maybe we can get the Quebec model. Maybe. I, I think that would be great. You know, the Quebec model is basically you're charging parents about $6 a day for each child in child care. And 
the number of women working went from about 67% to 82% in Quebec and actually paid for itself just based on the income taxes that people were paying. And over 25 years, they found it was so successful, they're implementing it in the rest of Canada. I just, I think there's, I do think that people agree, but it's going to take a lot of government support here. And obviously, Joe Biden tried to get it through in the federal government. That wasn't happening. So I think we need to start at a smaller level. I'd love to see grassroots community support for an experiment here and how that could happen. Because, yeah, this and we our project is making this an economic argument, not a best for the kids argument. That is a no brainer as well. Absolutely. It's best for kids. It's best for individual families. But I think people understand that you cannot work if you don't have dependable childcare. Intel's coming to to this state and there is a worldwide shortage of workers to work in chip plants Mm -hmm. that are starting to get in the way. So this would make it a lot easier for them to get women into their workplace and they're, they're going to be counting on that workforce for this big plant they're building. And to get the federal support, they have to put childcare in. I mean, it's a smart thing to do anyway, but it's built into the federal grants at this point. I'd, it, it'll be very interesting to see if the legislature starts to get behind this in spite of the guy who's leading well, the Ohio Senate. No, I was gone last week and I had kind of a recap of the series so far. I ran on the front page of The Plain Dealer on Wednesday right below the issue one results and reading it. I was, you know, I just saw the front page. I'm like, wow, it's like, OK, way to go, Ohio. Here's the next thing you can tackle. Let's let's keep this momentum going. <laughs> I just everything's lining up. I mean, it seems like there's there is momentum, and the Ohio Chamber gets it. They want to fill these jobs, so we'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Remember that big explosion at a metal recycling plant in Oakwood last February? We now know the details and who is to blame for the incident that killed one and injured more than a dozen others. Lisa, what did OSHA find? Yeah, the investigation by OSHA found that the February 20th explosion at the I. Schumann metal recycling plant in Oakwood was caused by a furnace leak that allowed water to come into contact with molten metal. As you said, that blast killed one that was 46-year-old Stephen Mullins and injured 15 others. It extensively damaged the Alexander Road facility and hurled debris hundreds of feet from the site. OSHA said that the blast was preventable. They found that I. Schumann was not following safety guidelines. They should have shut down the furnace while employees inspected a leak in the water jacket shell that creates a barrier around the furnace and regulates the furnace temperature. And apparently it moves around and they should have stopped the furnace to keep that movement from happening. So they issued six citations. They're proposing $62,500 in fines, but I. Schumann in a statement disagreed with the ruling. They say that they will discuss at an upcoming conference that is allowed by OSHA regulations to discuss the the results in the citations. The plant does remain closed. Uh, Schumann says that they're working with the Ohio EPA for on-site cleanup. Well, yeah, the the fear was what kind of contaminants were spread by this thing, and that's what they've been looking at. This does tell you again, though, about the power of a steam explosion. And this was water getting into the furnace, and just the that force caused this massive explosion that was felt all over the east side. You are listening to Today in Ohio. 
The question of who owns our cells and body parts is in the news of late, in part because of a settlement with the descendants of a woman whose cells have helped in all kinds of medical research. Layla, what's that case and what does a local healthcare ethicist think of it all? This is the case of Henrietta Lacks. She was a a black woman from a poor community in Baltimore who in the early 1950s had gone to Johns Hopkins University Hospital to be treated for a very aggressive cervical cancer that eventually killed her. But during a surgical procedure at the hospital, cells from her cervix and the cancerous tumor were harvested without her knowledge or consent and handed over to a researcher who had been trying to grow human cells in culture in the lab. And her very aggressive tumor cells turned out to be the first human cells that grew prolifically in culture and and in fact kind of took on an immortal quality. They never died, which made them very valuable to the scientific community. Through the decades, those cells, which are now known widely as HeLa cells, named for, for the first two letters of her first name and her last name, they've been used in scientific research of all kinds and eventually led to discoveries in cancer, polio, sickle cell disease, TB, and HIV. In fact, just about every research lab in the world has these cells on hand as a staple of their work. Well, Henrietta Lacks's family didn't learn about her unwitting contribution to science until years after her death. And controversially, while research companies profited greatly from the work that was being done using her cells, her family remained in poverty. And their story became the subject of a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And Oprah Winfrey, in fact, also starred in a movie based on the book. Well, Thermo Fisher Scientific was one of the medical research companies that profited from the sale of those cultured cells. And earlier this month, the Lacks family settled with Thermo Fisher for an undisclosed sum. And a family attorney says that this is just the first of what they hope will be other settlements that will make right the fact that Henrietta Lacks was exploited, indeed, in the name of science, but also for profit. So reporter Gretchen Kuda-Crowen, who herself actually was once a lab researcher who used HeLa cells, coincidentally, she caught up with local bioethicists about the significance of the Lacks settlement and the ethical questions that, that come from it. And Mark Alisio, who's the chair of the bioethics department at Case Western, said, it's pretty clear today that taking a patient's cells without their consent is unethical. But the question of what happens to those cells and who owns the discoveries that they make possible is much less clear. The fear is that this settlement with the Lacks family will open the floodgates for similar lawsuits or worse would ultimately deter people from participating in medical research if they couldn't lay claim to any future financial benefits that come from those tissues. The Lacks family has already filed another lawsuit against another biopharmaceutical company. So it looks like they're on the path uh, toward, toward continuing that fight. Ethicists say this is really a fine balance between avoiding exploitation while also furthering science. And the key is to build trustworthy research. Yeah, it was an interesting look. It's not a local story, except it is because of all the medical discoveries that have taken place because of the cells. And a lot of doctors have used them, as you mentioned, Gretchen did. Uh, But it's something that's right back in the news because the family has sued another pharmaceutical company after the first settlement with the same claim. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
The Farmer's Almanac could not have been more wrong about its dire prediction for last winter, which proved to be quite mild, but that doesn't stop the low-credibility almanac from making predictions for this year. Laura, does the credibility problem arise from the way it does the predicting? I mean, it just republished Dick Goddard's list of signs portending bad winners, and they are a little bit wacky. What are they? They are wacky, and you have to think that any kind of prediction months and months out is not going to hold out because, I mean, they can't really predict the weather even the same day sometimes. How often do you look at your your phone and the, the forecast changes on when it's supposed to rain? So yeah, good luck. But the Goddard sides of winter are unusual. I had not heard them before. Some of them, yes, like geese and ducks flying south earlier than usual. Okay. Early migration of the monarch bat- butterfly. But heavy and numerous fogs throughout August pigs gathering sticks. I'm not sure where in Northeast Ohio we're supposed to go look for pigs to see if they're gathering sticks. Um, thicker or n- than normal onions or corn husks. I've been husking a lot of corn. I don't feel like it's any thicker than usual. Uh, thick hair on the nape of a cow's neck. Again, I, do you have a regular cow that you consult for, for wintertime forecasts? I will say this. I have seen monarchs already. They're about two weeks early. I've seen a lot of monarchs flying south. So so, so do you believe we'll have blizzards? I don't know. And I, I will say that I, I am an avid reader of the old Farmer's Almanac, which is about 10 years older than the Farmer's Almanac. And their predictions are actually about 45 to 50% correct. Well, if you say it's going <laughs> to be cold or it's not going to be cold, I mean, there's your two forecasts. Pick one. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, they're saying especially cold and snowy. And I love that they're like, well, we did predict that really cold snap at Christmas time last year. It's like, okay, well, the rest of the winter was off. So, I mean, that was the coldest it got last winter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We should have discussed this yesterday. How close was the Ohio Supreme Court's latest vote to reject yet another challenge to the abortion amendment on the Ohio ballot in November? Lisa. Yeah, actually, it was unanimous, believe it or not. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. So they tossed a lawsuit that was seeking to keep reproductive rights measure off the November ballot. That was filed by former Representative Tom Brinkman, the Republican from Cincinnati, and former Republican legislative candidate Jen Giroux. They claimed that it was invalid because it didn't mention what state laws would have to be repealed. So the court ruled that only proposed initiated statutes, like the one for marijuana legalization that will hopefully be on the November ballot, those are the only ones that need to list existing laws that have to be changed or repealed. Uh, Justice Pat Fisher uh, wrote a separate but concurring opinion. He pointed out further that he said constitutional amendments by themselves cannot repeal laws. The the ridiculous thing is that This thing has been vetted over and over and over again by people who oppose abortion and found to be sound. There is nothing wrong with this amendment. And you keep seeing these desperate acts. You saw issue one. You've seen no end of challenges. And and so far, the Supreme Court is ruling based on the law and people will vote on this in November Uh, It's what, what strikes me, though, is the desperation being made to stop the will of the people from determining abortion rights in Ohio. That's what this is about. We don't want people, we don't want the majority to determine abortion policy in this state. 
we think we know better than the majority. So we're going to do everything we possible to block them. Well, it gives me a glimmer of hope for the Ohio Supreme Court, which has been quite nakedly partisan in some of their rulings. So it's good to know. But the, the law seems pretty clear here. Well, I think they also saw the lopsided vote on issue one and might be thinking they don't want to get in the way of this train either because it's coming down the tracks. The vote's going to happen. And if they did anything to impede it, the voters would start to look much more closely at them. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What do we know of the huge but so far rejected proposal by Cleveland Cliffs to buy sister steel making company U.S. Steel? Layla? U.S. Steel, which is based in Pittsburgh, said Sunday that it rejected a $7.3 billion buyout proposal from Cleveland Cliffs. Instead, they're reviewing their strategic alternatives after receiving several unsolicited offers. U.S. Steel said it, it rejected the offer because Cleveland Cliffs was pushing for it to accept the terms without being allowed to first conduct their their due diligence. The company felt it didn't have time to determine whether the proposal properly reflects the full and fair value of their company. Cleveland Cliffs announced that they they valued U.S. Steel at $7.3 billion based on stock valuations. Cleveland Cliffs said the value of the offer was $35 a share, which is a premium over U.S. Steel's closing stock price of $22.72 on Friday. This offer would have created a company that would be among the 10 biggest steelmakers in the world and one of the top four outside of China, according to Cleveland Cliffs. They released the details of the private offer after U.S. Steel rejected the offer. U.S. Steel says they, they want to consider their options and that the offers they're receiving are validation of their strategy, which includes expanding their electric arc furnace steelmaking and finishing capabilities. Yeah, U.S. Steel is 186 on the most recent Fortune 500. Cleveland Cliffs is 170. So this would put them in the top 100, according to the story by Sean McDonnell. The, they would have been a powerhouse. They have received, U.S. Steel has received uh, another offer from another steel company that's considerably better than Cleveland Cliffs. But Cleveland Cliffs is saying they believe it's going to happen, that they're, they ultimately will get U.S. Steel. Big and deal, they, huh? say that, they say that they also have the support of the United Steelworkers Union, which has 14,000 members at Cleveland Cliffs and 11,000 at U.S. Steel. And I got to assume that's pretty powerful. Yeah, it would be a big, big story for Cleveland because Cleveland Cliffs is based here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is this any way to treat your neighbors? How did two Cleveland neighborhood disputes on different ends of town end very badly? Laura? Well, this story from John Tucker reminded me of all of the horrible shooting deaths that we saw this year, you know, when like a ball rolled into somebody else's yard or they, uh, somebody rang the door, wrong doorbell by mistake. But thankfully, nobody was killed in this. But it does make you think about how violent a disagreement can quickly become and how much animosity is just out here. So an East Side man is accused of shooting his neighbor in broad di- daylight, a West Side man charged with beating his friend's neighbor with a baseball bat. So in the shooting, it was over yard work, apparently. And on the other one, it was over a car parked in a driveway. So the cops did arrive. This this 30-year-old victim that was grazed in the stomach by a bullet, he told the police that the victim had been threatening to kill him and his family members. And the victim warned the guy to keep away while he did yard work and that he had an AK-47. So the victim who was shot did fire a weapon as well, but didn't 
shoot the other guy. And then the other one, <laughs> totally unrelated, a 27-year-old man came home from a grocery store, found a car parked in his driveway. He asked their downstairs neighbor if they could move the car. He needed to unload the groceries and close the gate for his dog. That got really heated really fast. So they, you know, there was swear words exchanged. And then, yeah, the, the friend who, I guess, didn't want to move his car went after the guy with a baseball bat. Yeah, it was a 20-inch baseball bat, though. I'm not quite sure what the use of a 20-inch baseball to that is. Uh, but, yeah, both people ended up in jail charged with serious violent crime just because they were having arguments with their neighbors. Used to be you could talk things out with your neighbors, but now if you have a gun or a baseball bat, I guess not. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Finally, we talked last week about the unusual murder case in Cuyahoga County's courtroom in which a woman was charged with using her vehicle as the weapon. Lisa, how did that case end? It's been the talker down at the courthouse. It certainly has. Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Nancy Margaret Russo found 19-year-old Mackenzie Shirilla guilty in the deaths of her boyfriend Dominic Russo and a, a friend Davion Flanagan. They were killed last July when Shirilla drove her car 100 miles an hour into a brick wall in a Strongsville business park. This was a bench trial. There was no jury involved. Uh, Shirilla will be sentenced on Monday the 21st. This carries an automatic life sentence with no parole for 15 years. Prosecutor Mike O'Malley says video from a nearby business seconds before the crash was key to them filing murder charges and trying Sharilla as an adult because she was 17 at the time of the crash. Um, he said it was appropriate when she... Or, it was appropriate because she floored the accelerator for four to five seconds before hitting the wall. And Judge Russo said that the video was also key to her verdict. She said that Sharilla morphed from responsible driver to literal hell on wheels. She had a mission that she executed with precision, and the decision was death. So Sharilla, her boyfriend, and the other fella spent the night before the crash smoking pot at a friend's house, um, you know, and there had been statements saying that, you know, she was upset with her boyfriend, they were arguing, and there were a lot of supporters, though, of Sharilla in the courtroom. Uh, they were shouting their support at the verdict and, you know, said, we love you as she was let off in handcuffs. Yeah, the the premeditation though does seem to have been there because she had talked about doing the very thing she, she ended did. up doing she had said you know I'll, I'll kill him by driving into a wall it's a weird way to commit murder because if you slam into a brick wall going that fast there's a good likelihood that if it kills everybody else it'll kill you too but she was the survivor she was uh, and i found it it was an interesting where you know because they had to pry her out of the car she did survive but they had to get the jaws of life to get her out and they had this description in the story about how her fuzzy Prada slipper was still stuck to the accelerator when they pulled her out. It's just, it's such a tragedy and so many lives wrecked by, by just a really bizarre way of committing murder. I'm surprised too she went with a judge. I mean, I would think a judge is more likely to convict you than a jury might be. That you just need reasonable doubt from one juror. I, I wonder why the defense chose to go this way, uh, where a conviction seems more certain. Yeah, they must have thought they had a slam dunk there, but obviously they didn't. And I'm assuming that there's no familial relationship between Judge Russo and Dominic Russo, one of the victims in this case. Oh, I'm, yeah, I, I'm sure it's a very common name. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's a short episode today. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening.